Uh, let me just uh, make a few final comments about the uh, the Sharia concept and prohibition of uh, extremism. And the first comment that I want to make is that almost all of the books that talk about uh, extremism and, and discuss the modern uh, phenomena of, of extremism, they all talk about the point that extremism is a movement towards uh, religiousness and goes beyond the limits of proper religiousness. In other words, it is not like an anti-religious movement, but it is something that is uh, the inclination or the drive behind it is actually a religious motivation, but it just goes beyond the extremes and the limits that are set by the Sharia. So in other words, the intention of the people supposedly might be good or are good, but they've gone beyond the limits set by the Sharia. Uh, as I said, this is, uh, this is what many, uh, most of the writers who have written about contemporary, contemporary phenomena of, uh, of extremism have concluded. There's just one, uh, small point that I would, I would, wish, I would like to add to that, and it's actually, uh, a very important point. And that is that extremism is not always just trying to be religious and going beyond the extreme of, uh, of beyond the limits of what the religion allows. But also, it is also sometimes the case that the person sees what the religion has. In other words, what are the, what are the obligations of the religion or what are the laws of the religion and decides that they are not sufficient. And in the name of religion itself goes beyond refuses to accept what the religion states and goes beyond it. When it comes to a point like this, I think you can no longer say really that it's religiously motivated. Here, the person is actually rejecting what the religion has stated and is going beyond it to implement the religion in the way that he feels uh, should be implemented. <clears throat> so, in general, yes, you can say it is a move to be more religious, but the problem with it is, it is not being religious in the proper sense as laid down in the Sharia, in the Quran and Sunnah. <clears throat> uh, secondly, if you want to classify an act, something that somebody does, as an act which is extreme, an act of extremism, this requires the proper study in the light of the Qur'an and Sunnah. In other words, you have to go back to the evidences of the Qur'an and Sunnah and study that act within the lights of the Qur'an and Sunnah to define whether or not that should be considered an extremist act or not. We gave, we gave examples earlier, <coughs> earlier, for example, of, uh, you know, some of the people who say that if you believe in jihad as an obligation or you believe the Jews and Christians are kuffar, that this is extremism. Obviously, from the Sharia text, this is not extremism whatsoever. And it, it takes a scholar sometimes to realize what are the limits, what is extremism, and what is not extremism. <clears throat> it is also not extremism to be as complete and to make your Islam as good as possible. In other words, you try to do as many acts as you can within the, within the Sharia or that the Sharia recommends. This is not extremism. Extremism, though, it can come in effect when you go beyond what you are capable of, 
And so therefore you begin to exhaust yourself or you begin to overburden yourself. But otherwise, to recognize, you know, what are good deeds and to try to perform those good deeds, in general, this will not be, uh, not be uh, extremism. And another point, I want to make this a very important point, <clears throat> and that is that sometimes there is difference of opinion among the scholars on a certain issue. And for someone to decide that he's going to follow one of those opinions, which is the, what we could call the harshest or the strictest of those opinions, this is not in and of itself necessarily extremism. If someone follows an opinion and it happens to be the strictest of the opinions, this in itself, this is not extremism. And the reason I, I want to emphasize that point is because I've, I've heard it from, from many people, kind of comments like, for example, if a woman covers her face, <clears throat> if a woman decides she's going to cover her face, you'll find other people saying, this is extremism. You know, there's two opinions. One says uh, she can uncover her face. Why does she have to go to that extreme? And this is, uh, and then they start calling, I mean, they basically they use the word extreme and they say this is kind of an extremist approach to Islam. This is incorrect. This is incorrect on a number of uh, grounds. First of all, it could be the case that the stricter opinion is the stronger opinion. And if the stricter opinion is the stronger opinion, then you should follow it, irregardless of whether the fact, uh, irregardless of the fact that maybe some other people might have uh, an easier opinion to follow. So, for example, if you've studied the issue, let's say just stick with covering the face, just to stick it as an example. If you studied the issue of covering the face, and you concluded that it is obligatory upon the woman to cover the face, if you made that conclusion based on your study of the evidences, then you have to follow that opinion, and it is not a form of extremism whatsoever. And anyone who would say that this is extremist just because other people have different opinions, this is definitely incorrect in the light of the Quran <clears throat> Secondly, also, you may follow the stricter opinion because you are making taqlid. In other words, you don't have the you don't have the means to study the issue and decide what is the stronger opinion. So you are following those scholars that you trust and that you know. So those scholars whom you trust and know have the stricter opinion, so you follow the stricter opinion. <clears throat> and thirdly also, you might also follow the stricter opinion just to be on the safe side. Now, in some cases, just being on the safe side, there's no sanction for it in some cases. Or if there's no evidence from the Qur'an and Sunnah, or the evidence goes against it, then you should not go on what you could call the safe side. Suppose, for example, uh, a Muslim offers you food, and you know that he's a religious Muslim, and, and you have no reason to doubt the food that he's giving you. So the Sharia has prohibited even us from asking, you know, is this food halal or not? Right? You don't ask him where his food came. And you certainly would not avoid his food, just to be on the safe side. Here you are doing something which is, has no evidence for in the Sharia, and that can be a kind of extremism. But if you are looking at an issue, <clears throat> and you see that there's scholars having this opinion, and scholars having another opinion, and they both have the evidences from the Quran and Sunnah, and you're not sure, you have no idea which one 
may be the stronger opinion, so therefore you decide to follow the opinion which is the safest, this is also completely and perfectly acceptable in the Sharia. It is not a form or type of uh, extremism. <clears throat> and the last point I want to, to make before we get into uh, manifestations of, uh, of extremism. <clears throat> is that someone could have an opinion which is really uh, an extremist opinion or an extreme opinion, but he himself may not necessarily be an extremist. Someone could have an opinion. As we said, for example, when we talked about this group here, their foundation is based on something that is not consistent with the Qur'an and Sunnah, and that's how why they break into different groups. And they separate themselves from the main body of the Muslim. But someone might have an opinion that when you study that opinion, you may conclude that this opinion is beyond the limits of the Sharia. But that doesn't mean that that person automatically becomes an extremist. So in other words, he might be from the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. All of his principles are from the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And he's not from any extremist group, but on a certain issue, his understanding of that issue, his ishtihad that he includes on that issue, when other people study it or when you study it, you conclude that this must be an extremist view. And I think, in fact, in the history of Islam, many scholars had views, any which were considered irregular or outside of the limits of what is usually they call those shah's opinions, strange opinions that a scholar might have that is really outside of the limits. What is acceptable, and these are kind of like extreme opinions. So, for example, if you should happen to say that this is the view of uh, so-and-so, some scholar, and if you ask me this is a little bit extreme or this is beyond the, the limits of the Sharia, this is completely different from saying that that sheikh is an extremist. And I just, I just happen to have some personal experience on this, uh, on this point. That's why I want to emphasize this point. Nam? Share my personal experience with you? Okay. Can you bring me some coffee, you know, make it a more informal? <laughs> I was giving a lecture on some topic. And it was actually, it was a small group, but it wasn't really meant to be something that was, uh, it was kind of an informal lecture. Anyway, someone typed it up and put it on the internet, and that's a whole other story, but anyway. So this got to some other people. And in that lecture, I was talking about, uh, the topic actually was related to jihad. And so I mentioned, I mentioned one sheikh's opinion. And after discussing his opinion, I said, and on the other extreme, is this other opinion. Okay. So this first sheikh, so I discussed his opinion, and I said on the other extreme, so somebody has written, you know, like 10 or 15 pages about me on the internet, saying, I called sheikh so-and-so an extremist. And he quotes this uh, this point. Again, and this shows you, this shows you the quality of what you get on the internet, first of all. <laughs> but this, this, is, uh, this is a mistake. You know, just because you say that this sheikh has this opinion, and if you ask me, this is an extreme opinion. This does not mean that that sheikh is an extremist. 
He could be, he has a mistake in his ijtihad. Everyone is going to make a mistake sometimes. And you're calling his opinion an extreme opinion is not the same thing as you calling him an extremist. Same, someone could have uh, the same kind of concept with respect to kufr and kafir and, and bid'ah and mubtada. Someone could have some belief which is kufr, but he's not a kafir. Because he has some evidence for it, some ta'wil that he made, and he has come to that wrong ijtihad, or maybe he's out of ignorance, or maybe he doesn't know the evidences, or someone might have some bid'ah, following some bid'ah, but he's not a mubtada because he does not, he has never been shown that this is a bid'ah, it is wrong, or again he has made some ta'wil or something that he's uh, qualified to make. So there's a big difference between saying that someone is an extremist and that some point or some issue is, uh, some opinion is extreme. We should be careful about that because once you say that someone is an extremist, you know, this is like saying he's a mubtada. And he is someone who is now falling outside of the fold of that middle, uh, that middle group is falling the correct way. So you have to be very careful. Some, some people, uh, well, I'll get to that uh, point uh, later, inshallah. So, anyway, there's a difference between saying an opinion is an extreme and the person himself is an extreme. inshallah. So, uh, at that point now, I'll move on to manifestations of extremism. And Brother Haytham didn't mention, uh, hasn't mentioned it yet, I don't believe, but uh, uh, he wants he wants me, even though this was not agreed upon beforehand, he wants me to answer some questions that you might have. I don't know why. <laughs> so, the, uh, so for today, inshallah, at the end of the next session, we will take some uh, written questions, inshallah, at the end of the next session. So I'll try to compress the manifestations of extremism uh, as much as I can, inshallah. And at the end of the ne- next session, we'll, uh, we'll take some questions that you might have. Written, inshallah, just to make it uh, quicker and easier, inshallah. When you study the extremist groups throughout history, the groups that, you know, are very clearly separating themselves from the Muslims and, and making their own kind of usul or own kind of foundation, you see that there are many uh, manifestations or many common characteristics that they have, uh, behaviors toward, with respect to the rest of the, of the Muslim uh, community. I think, inshallah, for this, for this lecture, I'm going to list a whole bunch of them and then try to discuss uh, maybe one or one or two of them inshallah whatever i have time in this uh, session inshallah <clears throat> we, start, we we find for example that extremist groups have a tendency <clears throat> to manifest aspects of extremism with respect to the concept of the jamaa the concept of the jama'ah and the absolute obedience to the jama'ah and making their jama'ah the standard for what is correct. And what I what I mean by that, probably, unfortunately, many of you probably have experienced that with people. And that is where there is Islamic group, even, even if it's not sometimes even an extremist uh, Islamic group. But once someone joins a group or is part of some kind of uh, clique or group, he begins to see everything as whatever his group is doing is correct. And anyone who disagrees with his group must be incorrect. So in other words, 
<coughs> the standard of truth becomes what their group, what their jama'ah believes in and what their jama'ah is doing. The danger of that, of course, is that they are, in reality, they are replacing the Qur'an and Sunnah, which should be the standard of what is true and what is false. They are replacing it with the opinions and the views of their group. So, for example, if their group believes in something, if their group makes a, a decision about some ask, some practice, some deed, even some policy, if their group, for example, makes some decision about September 11th, whether it's justified or not, then that becomes the truth to them. And anyone who disagrees with what their group says, these people must be outside of the fold of the correct group, they must be deviants, they must be Ahlul Bid'ah and so forth. Instead of going back to the Quran and Sunnah and saying that maybe their group is incorrect, basically you can bring evidence from the Quran and Sunnah that might show that their group and the opinion of, the, of that group is incorrect, but they will not accept that fact. That if their jama'ah, if their group says something that is the truth, then anyone who disagrees with it must be mistaken. And this kind of partisanship to one's group can easily develop into another uh, aspect which becomes even more dangerous. And that is when the jama'ah or the group looks upon themselves as being the only true Muslim. That's so why one of the extremist groups in, the, in Egypt, they, they called themselves, other people had other names for them, some polite, some not so polite, <laughs> but they called themselves Jama'at al-Muslimin, meaning the Jama'at of the Muslims. And what they meant by that is that anyone who is outside of that Jama'at is not actually a Muslim. So sometimes what happens for, for many brothers when they join when they join some of the many Dawah groups and many organizations and groups, sometimes when they join the group, their, their intention, their, their niya is very clear to serve the purpose of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so when they get into the group, they are joining the group for that intention. They want to work for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so they see this group doing good work and they're convinced this is a good group, they join the group. With that proper intention. But what happens over time is, especially when you're in a group and you're always surrounded by that group and they're always talking about how great the group is and everybody is talking about, oh look, we're on the truth and we're following the Quran and Sunnah and we're doing so much. And the person forgets sometimes his intention, why even he joined that jama'ah in the first place. And after some time he starts working, instead of working for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he starts working for the sake of the jama'ah. Because to him it becomes almost blurred. It's the same thing. What the jama'ah is doing is what Allah wants. What Allah approves of. And that's when, that's the first step when all of the truth and everything is confined within the jama'ah. Whatever the jama'ah says is the correct and any opinion that disagrees with that. And by the way, this, uh, this characteristic unfortunately is sometimes found among those who say they are anti-jama'ah. But actually they belong uh, in a non-literal sense to their jama'ah. <clears throat> and then they get, as I said, the, the danger of that is they get beyond that to not just saying that all the truth is according to the opinions of their jama'ah, but actually the only real Muslims are the members of their jama'ah. And 
If you study the, the history of the extremist groups that developed in, in Egypt, that started mostly in the, in the prisons uh, in Egypt, this is the conclusion that they came to, that they are the only Jamaat al-Muslimin, they are the only true uh, Muslims, and anyone who is outside of their group is a kafir. And the thing, by the way, about uh, takbir declaring people kafir, uh, this is something that has a history in Islam, going back to the time of the Khawarij. Once you start declaring people kafir, it becomes very easy to basically start declaring everyone kafir, even those in your own group who all of a sudden disagree about something. <laughs> we also have uh, one of the common manifestations of, uh, of extremism is related to this last point that I mentioned, the quick declaration or the quick, quick declaring of other people as disbelievers without uh, holding up or without uh, applying the Sharia conditions for such a statement. For example, one of the common characteristics is to declare, for example, anyone who rules by other than what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed, he is a kafir. And you make that general declaration. And of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Quran, وَمَنْ لَمْ يَحْكُمْ بِمَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ فَأُولَٰئِكُمْ الْكَافِرُونَ That whoever uh, rules not in accord with what Allah has revealed, then he is, then they are the dis- then they are disbelievers. Now, of course, to understand that verse properly and to understand even the concept of kufr. And if that, the, that there's different levels of kufr. There are some levels of kufr that take one out of the, or there's some, some means of kufr that take one out of the fold of Islam. This is what is known as the greater kufr. And then there's also the lesser kufr, what is known as kufr duna kufr. The lesser kufr is obviously it is a great sin and it is dangerous for the health of the individual his spiritual health I'm talking about. <laughs> but it does not take him out of the fold of Islam. And unfortunately, you know, many, uh, especially new Muslims, you know, when you first convert to Islam, you have a tendency to take every hadith and every verse in the Quran literally without realizing that maybe there's different levels to what it means and so forth. So for example, kufr, you have to realize that there are, there's more than one type of kufr. One takes you out of the fold of Islam, and another one does not take you out of the fold of Islam. Although obviously it is a great sin, and it is called kufr duna kufr, because it can easily lead you to the kufr that takes you out of the fold of Islam. So with respect to the rulers, even it's narrated from some of the Sahaba when they talked about this uh, verse in the Quran, وَمَنْ لَمْ يَحْكُمْ بِمَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ فَأُولَٰئِكُمْ الْكُفْرِ It said this is kufr duna kufr. And this is the lesser kufr. Probably they were talking about specific situations that existed at that, at that time, that the way of not applying the Sharia at that time was the lesser kufr, not the greater kufr. But in general, you cannot just say, okay, whoever rules, whoever, uh, if there's a ruler that is not ruling by the Sharia, is automatically kafir. 
kafir in the meaning he's outside of the fold of Islam. Yes, if he denies the Sharia, or if he says he has the right not to apply the Sharia, or if he says that his way of uh, government, or if he says that capitalism or socialism is better and and more suitable for our time, yes, all of these kind of beliefs are cover that takes him out of the fold of Islam. However, if he is, if he believes that the Sharia is to be applied, or he believes in the Sharia and he knows it's the best way, yet due to some weakness or due to some desire on his own, he's not applying the Sharia, but he knows it's obligatory upon him to apply the Sharia, and he knows he's committing a sin by not applying the Sharia, then this is the lesser kufr that does not take him out of the fold of Islam. It is similar to anyone who commits a sin. And by the way, this is also another form of extremism, so be careful how you answer my question now. If you commit a sin, does that take you out of the fold of Islam? Depends. Okay, we got borderline uh, extremists here. <laughs> just the action, you know it's a sin, just the action of committing a sin. Does it take you out of the fold of Islam? Doesn't, sir. Even if, uh, suppose it's a kabair, big, big sin. <laughs> huh? Okay, committing a sin, even a big sin does not take you out to the fold of Islam, right? The Khawarij, one of the first extremist groups, you know, as, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, they said you commit a grave sin, this takes you out to the fold of Islam. And then you have the, the politicians, I mean the Mu'tazila, who said, no, it doesn't take you out of the fold of Islam, you are in between, but you'll be in hellfire forever. Well, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So, for example, if someone drinks alcohol, you know, he knows it's haram, but he has some weakness, and he disobeys Allah, and he drinks alcohol. He's not committing kufr that takes him out of the fold of Islam, right? Suppose he says that this alcohol is halal. I was reading one book on human rights uh, recently, human, uh, talking about human rights in Islam and so forth, and uh, I forget this, uh, the one from Sudan. What's his name? He's in Georgia. He, he, he translated the, you know, the Republican Brothers books and, I forget his name. Anyway, he, there was a non-Muslim discussing with him and he said, uh, I mean, the book was written by a non-Muslim and then he put in his footnote that in my discussion with so-and-so, this Sudanian Jordan, he said, I came to realize that, uh, not all Muslims agree that alcohol is haram. <laughs> But if I, let's, uh, I think we all maybe inshallah agree on that uh, point. So if, if he says though, I, he says the alcohol is halal. I know what the verse in the Quran say, but I say alcohol is halal. Is this kufr? That takes him out of the fold of Islam? In general, you know, if the principles are met, I mean, he's not insane <laughs> and so forth. This is kufr that will take him out of the fold of Islam. So when he's weak and he commits a sin, even though he knows it's wrong, it's not taking him out of the fold of Islam. And the same thing that when the ruler does something of that nature, it doesn't take him out of the fold of Islam, even though he's committing a grave sin that can lead to kufr. And it is called kufr, duna kufr, for a reason. This does not take him out of the fold of Islam. But that's one of the characteristics, especially of the modern groups of uh, extremists, they look at the rulers 
and they declare all of them in which the Sharia is not being applied completely. They said all of these people are kufar. All of these rulers are kufar. Now obviously that has uh, certain uh, implications. If they are kufar, if they are making kufr that takes them out of the fold of Islam, then they don't have the right to be ruling over the Muslims. Now, of course, they didn't, uh, they didn't stop there. But, as in the modern groups in Egypt, for example, they said that anyone who works for this kind of government is also kept. How many of you uh, are study economic development? Uh, okay, that was my field, by the way. <laughs> Nobody seems to care about economic development. Well, now you know why I never finished my PhD in it. <laughs> Anyone who works for these for these governments is a cap. Now, in the United States, the public sector is not very large. In most lesser developed countries, what they call lesser developed countries, or third world countries, or southern countries, the public sector is usually quite a bit larger. So all of those people who work in the government sector, they are all kufar. Why? Because they are, they are working under the authority of that ruler who is a cap. So simply by the fact that they are working under his authority, which means the, uh, that he's accepting, that's what they're arguing, that they are accepting his authority, so therefore they are all kufar. And obviously, should I wait for the music to stop or? <laughs> I expect some little you know, toy drummer to come out here. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa shadu an la ilaha illallah wahduhu la sharika lah wa shadu anna Muhammadin abduhu wa rasuluhu. Amma ba'd. Inshallah in this last session for today, as I said, inshallah, I'll try to leave some room at the end of the session for some questions, inshallah. So I'll just uh, <clears throat> discuss maybe one or two more aspects of the uh, manifestations of extremism. And one of the one of the common manifestations of extremism that again is particularly prevalent among some of the extremist groups that developed in Egypt, but also is a concept that uh, exists among uh, many brothers who are not necessarily, again, from those kinds of extremist groups, has to do with the question of taqlid and ijtihad. And here we have really, again, two extremes, and the correct position is somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. With respect to ijtihad and, and taqlid, you have the well-known uh, group and or view that it is obligatory to make taqlid, that every Muslim must choose and even some of them go to this extent and say it like this, every Muslim 
Well, I must have missed something that was going on outside because now everybody's uh, <laughs> coming in now. So one of the views is that every Muslim must choose one of the four madhabs and follow that madhab completely and consistently without any deviation whatsoever. And then the other extreme that we have is the approach of some uh, brothers. And as I said, this this one in particular, uh, this other extreme is uh, popped up in, in Egypt among those extremist groups, where taqlid is completely haram. So you have the one group saying that uh, everyone must make complete taqlid, and the other one saying taqlid is completely haram. I think with respect to the, the first group of those who said that one must, one must make uh, complete uh, taqlid, the popularity of that opinion had di- had died down quite a bit. But recently there's some people who are trying to revive it to the best of their ability. With regards to the first view that taqlid is obligatory and everyone must make taqlid, this uh, this view, for example, when I uh, became Muslim, this view had kind of uh, died out and there was very few who were kind of propagating this view. But now, it is kind of like, uh, kind of being revived very strongly by certain uh, sectors. The strange thing, of course, for this uh, for this view is obviously you're not going to bring any direct evidence from the Qur'an or Sunnah for this view that you have to follow one of the four madhabs. Right? Except for some fabricated hadith, and there are some fabricated hadith. The Prophet ﷺ never uh, mentioned obviously Abu Bakr, I mean Abu Hanifa or uh, Imam Malik or Shafi or Ahmed or even these four uh, four madhabs. So even the question of restricting it to these four madhabs is something that uh, has no basis whatsoever. However, what we do know from the Quran and Sunnah what is very clear from the Quran and Sunnah is that it is obligatory for the Muslims to obey Allah and to obey the Messenger. This is the obligation upon the Muslims. To obey Allah and to obey the Messenger. And no Muslim has any right to say, I'm going to obey someone else. Independent of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said in the Quran and Sunnah. It's true all of these four imams of the four schools of, of fiqh. We believe in all of them as great Muslims and great scholars. And their intention was to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this doesn't mean that their statements are always correct according to the Quran. And this doesn't mean that their ijtihad and their conclusions is or are the actions or the way of belief or the way of acting that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if that's true for the four imams, obviously it's true for all of their followers. So when a person gets into a situation, and I'm not even going to get into the details of how you're going to make taqlid in this day and age anyway. It's virtually impossible. For example, uh, if you ask somebody about uh, stocks, buying stocks in 18T. 
Or are you going to find in the Hanafi books where they talk about buying stocks in a company like uh, AT&T? So, and even the, the issue or the concept of taqlid is something that is not complete anyway. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it very clear in the Quran, يَا أَيُّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَاتِيَ اللَّهُ وَاتِيَ الرَّسُولُ وَأُولَيَا مِنْ مِنْكُمْ فَإِنْ تَنَزَعْتُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ فَرُدُّهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَإِلَى الرَّسُولُ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it very clear that we have to obey Allah and obey the Messenger. And in the absolute, uncategorical obedience is only to Allah and to the Messenger. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and those in authority among you, Allah does not put the command to obey them in front of their names and puts it in front of Allah's name, Allah's name and the Messenger, but not in front of those in authority among you. Because the obedience to them is conditional upon obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger. The Prophet ﷺ has told us that there's no obedience to any created being in anything that involves disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then if you dispute about any matter, if we disagree about any matter, then again we have to take that back to Allah and the Messenger. So it's never an excuse for anyone for him to disregard what the Qur'an and Sunnah is saying, if it is clear to him what the Qur'an and Sunnah is saying, it is never an excuse for him to disregard what the Qur'an and Sunnah is saying, and to follow any any imam that he has chosen, that he is going to follow. First of all, he chose that even, even the imam he chose for himself. He said, oh, I'm going to choose Abu Hanifa or Imam Shafi or Ahmed. And he... He's already going to ignore some portions of the Qur'an Sunnah and he's even choosing for himself which imam he's going to follow. So if there ever comes a case in which someone is following a madhab, but then he is convinced based on whatever knowledge he has or based on the scholars that he knows and respects, if he is ever convinced that there is an opinion that goes against the Qur'an Sunnah within that madhab, then it is obligatory upon him to leave what that madhab says and to follow the Qur'an and Sunnah. And obviously each of the four imams, they made statements, similar statements, that shows that it was their belief that they would make mistakes and if they ever said anything that goes against the Qur'an and Sunnah, it is obligatory upon us to follow the Qur'an and Sunnah. Now, the other extreme basically is to say that taqlid is haram. And usually those who, usually those who, uh, make this statement, they also say that when we follow, we don't make taqlid, we make ittiba'ah. And we are following based on evidence. First of all, this is probably not, uh, true in all cases anyway. Some of the scholars even say that the ittiba'ah and taqlid are essentially the same. Because if you are saying for yourself, you don't know what is the correct position from the Qur'an and Sunnah, and you are relying on the scholars, then basically you're saying, I'm accepting what the scholars say, and I myself, I don't have the knowledge of what is correct, and so therefore I am forced to follow the conclusion of the scholars. This is taqlid. You can argue that, oh, I trust this scholar and he has evidence from the Qur'an and Sunnah. All of those people who made taqlid of the four schools, 
that taqlid you criticize so much, all of them said the same thing. That our imams, they base their opinion on the Quran, Sunnah, and, uh, and so that's why we're making taqlid, that's why we're following them. The point is, that, or the, the, the fact is that virtually everyone at one time or another may have to make taqlid. And taqlid is not haram. And if you do not know from the Quran and Sunnah what is the ruling on something, you have to turn to the people of Ahl-Dhikri. You have to turn to the people of Dhikr, the people of the reminder, remindance, remembrance, reminder, whatever, <coughs> if you do not know. Excuse me. This coffee came pretty late. <laughs> so you have to turn to the people of knowledge and you ask them and you take from them what they have given you and you follow it until you are convinced maybe that what they have said is wrong also. But otherwise in general it's the same kind of thing. Even scholars, even scholars have to make taqlid. You know, not every scholar has the time to look up every issue and to make his own ijtihad of every issue. If it is beyond his means, then he has to make taqlid. He has to turn to what do the other scholars say and he, of course he knows for the scholars he can read their arguments, he can get convinced. But he did not really make research and make his own ijtihad. The interesting thing is in Ulum al-Hadith, some of the people are, speak the harshest against taqlid, and probably, probably in Ulum al-Hadith you make taqlid more than in anything else. He's just looking blankly right by me. <laughs> you agree with that? When you go to a tahdeeb, a tahdeeb, and you're taking the conclusions of the other scholars about the narrators, you're making taqlid. Every time you check about the narrator, you're making some kind of taqlid. Because you don't know the narrators, you're not testing them yourself, you're not seeing them. You are accepting what the earlier scholars have said. So the important point though for every Muslim, important point for every Muslim is that he has the intention to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to do what is al-haq, what is the truth. That is the intention that should be in the heart of every Muslim. To obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to follow what is the truth. If that truth comes from, from someone from his family or if it comes from his enemy or it comes from a different madhab, it comes from a madhab or jama'ah he doesn't like, he doesn't care. He doesn't care where it comes from because all he's interested in is the truth. And this is the way a Muslim should be. So if he's making taqlid, he follows the scholars because he believes, inshallah, they made the proper ijtihad. If he's convinced by the scholars that he trusts that there's something wrong with the ijtihad that they made, then he leaves his madhab, and he follows what is correct according to the Quran and Sunnah. So on that point, actually, we have within the Muslim community and within among us, 
Even maybe even in this room, <laughs> we have those extremes existing a lot among us. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what is the role of the madhab, what is taqlid, what is the role of taqlid, when do we resort to taqlid or not. And unfortunately, of course, that, uh, if you go to some areas, uh, for example, if you go up to New York or Philadelphia, you can find mosques divided on this issue. Mosques of those people who claim they don't believe in taqlid versus those mosques which are the mosques of uh, taqlid. I will discuss one last uh, point, inshallah, so I can uh, leave some room for questions. We have until 5.50, so... I'll take about 10 or 15 minutes on this point, inshallah. And this is a topic which, and to me it's very closely related to to extremism. Although it may not be considered such as something that's the uh, particular to extremist groups. But I want to discuss a little bit about some of the principles when it comes to dealing with the people of Bid'a or the people that we suspect are the people of Bid'a, the innovators, the heretics. Because we find uh, unfortunately even among those people who claim that they are following the way of the Sunnah, the way of the Prophet the way of the Salaf. We find this problem in that they are going to an extreme in how they are dealing with other people that they do not feel are following on the same path that they are following. Many times in, in contemporary times, many times these people claim to be following certain of the ulama, like for example Sheikh bin Baz or Ibn Uthameen or Al-Albani. But it's very clear that in their behavior and in their actions, that they are not following the principles that are laid down by these ulama or by the earlier ulama like Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim. And one thing we should be aware about, and that is it should never be a goal or the intention of a Muslim to try to harm his Muslim brother. Harm them either by saying bad things about them, by ridiculing them, by showing uh, disgust or disrespect towards their brothers. This should never be a behavior or a characteristic of a Muslim with respect to his Muslim brother. And what happens oftentimes is that when there's a difference of opinion, when there's a difference of opinion, it says some people are, are very quick to judge other people as being off the straight path as being deviants, as being heretics, and as soon as they make that judgment, then there's a whole line of other things that fall from it. Don't associate with him, don't sit with him, don't talk to him, don't listen to his books, don't make salam to him, don't pray the janazah prayer for him. In fact, Al-Bani, in one, uh, in one interview that he gave, 
He said we have to be very important about taking some uh, statements, especially from some of the Tabayin and from some of the early scholars, taking some of the statements which is which which is res- with respect to certain conditions and certain applications, and we take them out of context and apply them in general. So the interviewer, the one who was asking him, he said, "What about making the Salat al-Janazah, the funeral prayer for the Ahl al-Bid'ah?" For the people who are from heretical groups. And the interviewer, as so many interviewers did, he kind of like tried to imply the answer in the question. <laughs> he said, this is not allowed, right? Based on the statements of the Tabayin and the, or the, or the Salaf or what, I don't remember exactly what he said. And, uh, Albani's re- response was to him, what, what is the basis for that? And the man said, we know that there's some reports that said that they used to not uh, make the janazah prayer for Ahlul Bid'ah. And again, Albani, again, he asked him, what, uh, what are you basing that on? And he said, there's some report, you know. <laughs> now, I myself, if that were me, I would probably be shaking, you know, talking to Albani, like, <laughs> I don't know, I think I read that in one of your books or something. That's, <laughs> that's probably what I would have told him. Rahmatullah <laughs> Ali. And then finally he said, look, we have to be careful about taking a statement concerning specific circumstances or, or specific uh, environment and making that statement as the general rule when it is not something explicitly stated in the Qur'an Sunnah, but it was a practice at a certain time among a certain people. So he said, yes, it's true that there is a statement from one of the tabi'in that he said, we would not perform the janazah on the Ahl al-Bid'ah. But then Al-Bani asked the, uh, asked the questioner, if he's from Ahl al-Bid'ah, if he's from one of the heretical groups, isn't he still a Muslim? And the man said, of course, you know, I'm going by the writing, I'm not going by the... <laughs> I wish I could hear exactly how he said it, but the man said, yes, he's, uh, he's still a Muslim. So he said the general principle is that you have to or you and he will perform Salat al-Janazah for our brother and Muslim. And he's still within the fold of Islam so you make the Janazah for prayer for him and we have evidence the general evidence of the Quran Sunnah takes precedence over particular circumstances or particular cases because for example uh it might be the case that someone is doing something wrong and so you behave with respect to him because of your position that if you behave with respect to him it might have some effect on him. So for example, if someone dies from the Ahl al-Bid'ah and there's one well-respected sheikh that everyone uh, loves and, wa- and would like for him to make the janazah prayer for him, for them, if he lets it known that if people are from Ahl al-Bid'ah I'm not going to perform the janazah prayer, this is a kind of punishment that he might feel is sanctioned by the Sharia. But it does not lay down a general principle that when you have Ahl al-Bid'ah, you do not perform the janazah prayer for And Al-Bani discussed uh, these points in, uh, in detail. And he warned about not dealing with people in the proper way. That you make a judgment about them, and based on that judgment, and even that judgment in itself may or may not be correct, you automatically 
make a number of conclusions about how you should deal with uh, that person. As, uh, as Ibn Taymiyyah once said, that when it comes to speaking about people, and when it comes to speaking about others, giving your opinion about other people, he said it must be done with knowledge and justice, and not with ignorance and dhulm. And he says that in fact when you speak about others with ignorance and dhulm, this is the characteristic of Ahl al-Bid'ah. And when Ahl al-Bid'ah made takfir for each other and everything, they were speaking out of ignorance and uh, and wrongdoing. And he said that the ahmat al-ahl, ahmat al-sunnah wal-jama'ah wa ahl al-ilm wal-iman, yani those people who are the leaders of the ahl al-sunnah wal-jama'ah and the people of knowledge, they have ilm wal-adil wa-rahma. They have knowledge and they have justice and they have mercy. And this is it is on the basis of these three knowledge and justice and mercy that they interact with the other people. <clears throat> so as I said, I want to just discuss very briefly some of the principles that we should keep in mind when dealing with other people. And in particular, dealing with people who uh, we think or we accuse of being from Ahl al-Bidah and so forth. And these principles I'm going to mention, they are, uh, for the most part, they are based on quotes from uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. And the reason I uh, selected them from the quotes of Ibn Taymiyyah is because they are, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is someone who, and many of these people who have fallen into this form of extremism, this extremist kind of act, I guess I should say, uh, they claim to respect uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and follow his uh, his views. One of the principles that Ibn Taymiyyah mentions uh, quite often, and he says that this was the way of the scholars, uh, the early scholars and also the later scholars. He said that excuse should be given for the people of piety and righteousness. And if you know that someone is, from what you know of him, he's a pious person, he's righteous, he's trying to stick to the Quran and Sunnah, he said, excuse should be given to them when they mistakenly fall into an innovation based on ijtihad and also their statements should be interpreted in the best possible manner. So in other words, if you know someone and what you know of him is good, yani that he is someone who is trying to follow the Quran and Sunnah and that is all that you know of him from his behavior, from his actions, from his teaching, then if this person makes a mistake falls into some kind of bid'ah, and as we talked about before, just the fact that he has some kind of bid'ah does not make him a mubtada. And just the fact that he has some kind of mistake in his ishtihad doesn't mean that all of a sudden he's a deviant and he's from the heretical groups and we have to boycott him and so forth. And you should, if you know that the person is a person of piety and righteousness, then you should give him an excuse when he falls into a mistake based on uh, in his ishtihad. Because actually all of the people are human beings. All of them are going to make mistakes. And uh, Ibn Taymiyyah says, we have to be reminded of the dua of, uh, or the verse in the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taught us to say, رَبَّنَا لَا تُوَخِذْنَا إِنَّ سِينَا أَوْ أَخْتَعْنَا 
And the Prophet ﷺ has told us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, قَدْ فَعَلْتْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when, when after reading this, after reading this verse of the Qur'an, the Prophet ﷺ has told us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I have done so. In other words, I have forgiven the Muslims for their mistakes and for their acts of forgiveness. So, Annie, this is... Uh, one of the, the principles that, that, that he mentioned that we should not uh, be so rigid that we cannot overlook the mistake of someone if, the, we, if we know that he is overly pious and righteous. And also, and this is a, the second aspect that he mentions here is also a very important point, that when you interpret or try to understand what he said, you should try to interpret in the best possible way. In other words, don't try to look for what is wrong and try to attack and say, oh, he said this, this means such and such and such, and based on that, start criticizing someone. And in fact, that's one thing, uh, if you read like uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's statements about some of the early Sufis. He said these early Sufis, they made many of them made statements that are pretty clearly going against the Qur'an wa Sunnah. But Ibn Taymiyyah, even these statements, he tried to go to them and say, well, perhaps what he meant by this statement is not the way people understand it, but he might, might have meant such and such, which is consistent with the Qur'an wa Sunnah. So in that way, Ibn Taymiyyah was applying uh, the same principle that he had talked about in this uh, passage. The second point that Ibn Taymiyyah stresses over and over again, is that if the mujtahid makes a mistake in his ijtihad, he is not sinful. If the mujtahid makes a mistake in his ijtihad, he is not sinful. As the Prophet ﷺ has told us, that if the hakim, if a ruler or a judge makes a decision, if he is correct in his decision, he gets two ajr, two rewards. And if he is mistaken in his decision, he gets one reward for the effort that he put into it. But he might be wrong, he might be mistaken, but he is not sinful. And so therefore you don't treat him like a sinner uh, or a heretic or something of that nature. Then the principle continues that even if he makes the mistakes in matters which are called, yani from the usul, from the basics, the foundations, whether or not the mistake that he makes is from the basic matters or from the secondary issues, and you should not consider him sinful. You should not consider him sinful, not to speak of declaring him a disbeliever or an evildoer based on a mistake in ijtihad. And Ibn Taymiyyah in this passage, he gives many examples from the Sahaba themselves. <laughs> and, the Ibn Taymiyyah gave many examples from the Sahaba themselves in which they differed about issues of Aqidah. And they had different ijtihads, but they never claimed that the other were sinners, or they never claimed about each other that they're fasiqeen, or from Ahlul Bid'ah, or there are disbelievers, or anything of that nature. And if, for example, they disbelieved, uh, I mean, they, they disagreed, the Sahaba disagreed, concerning whether or not the Prophet ﷺ ever saw Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this life. 
And when he went in the, the Surah Al-Miraj, did he actually see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? The Sahaba themselves disagreed with them about, disagreed with each other on this issue. Even though this is an issue related to aqidah and related to what they call the usul. And even in these matters, someone might make uh, ijtihad and make a mistake. This does not mean that he is committing uh, a sin. Uh, or that he is a fasiq or from Ahlul Bin and so forth. Now another point that's also very important. Because people go to... <laughs> Again, people go to both extremes on these issues. He said, excusing the mujtahid with respect to the mistake that he made, overlooking the mistake that he made, does not mean uh, accepting that mistake in the sense of applying it. And it does not mean the permissibility to follow him in his mistake. Instead, it is obligatory to refute uh, his opinion if he's saying something that goes against the Quran and Sunnah. So he's saying at the same time, and this is the balance again, that we're missing so often. If someone makes a mistake in his ishtihad, you don't declare him a disbeliever or fasik or from Ahlul Bid'ah. Okay. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you just allow his mistake to go and continue and to increase and to have followers following and so forth. So, but the issue itself, you take the mistake that he made, you try to correct that mistake or...